Happy Valentine's Day to all my listeners, or alternately, Happy Discounted Heart-Shaped Chocolate Day Eve. Both are equally valid celebrations in my mind, but the What Explained Discount Heart-Shaped Chocolate Day Eve Special 2023 is a heck of a long title to put, so I went with the shorter option. For those of you who have listened to my holiday specials in the past, fear not. This episode has 100% less fossilized genitalia in it, but it's still going to be a super weird one. For those of you who haven't listened to my holiday specials in the past, what do you have against joy and new information? <sighs> but I digress. Today I am bringing you two stories about things that are ubiquitous in different ways, but both have one thing in common. Love and lust were the inspiration for both. Enjoy one story of love turned on its head, and another of cornflakes and one man's crusade to stop Americans from having so much sex. I'm Braden Thorvaldson, and this is What? Explain. Inspiration is a nigh-on impossible thing to bottle or control. Sometimes it appears and leaves without any rhyme or reason. And if you've got a book, article, or say, podcast episode that needs to get out sometime on a deadline, you'll desperately lock on to whatever inspiration you can get. Not that I'm speaking from experience or anything. However, one of the most cited forms of inspiration is love. That combination of endorphins and hormones is responsible for a significant portion of all cultural achievements in human history, from Renaissance paintings of wives and lovers to present-day art about lavender haze, love stories, and watching sparks fly. But is it the single largest cultural muse? I would argue that it's in second place to lost love, breakups, and heartbreak, in which most people are left with a lot more time on their hands to write songs, paint paintings, or create art to either channel or keep their minds off their current situation. If you're in love, you tend to be a lot more in the moment, spending time with said person you love, rather than creating art in some way relevant to the situation. Regardless of where you land on the topic, it's usually pretty apparent whether something was created by someone madly in love or someone in the throes of heartbreak. One could argue that they are pretty mutually exclusive emotions and that having one as the inspiration would be to the exclusion of the other. 99.9% .9 of the time, I would agree. But here's a story of a work that belongs in that other 0.1% which coincidentally happens to include one of the most well-known piano pieces in history, Fur Elise. Bagatelle number 25 in A minor, or Fur Elise, as it's more commonly known, may be one of the most well-known bits of Ludwig van Beethoven's work known in the present day, but it was basically written as a one-off composition for one person to play at the piano, rather than his symphonies that were supposed to have received this amount of interest. In fact, this piece wasn't officially published until 1867, 40 years after Beethoven's death. Beethoven wrote it as a trifle on April 27, 1810, a lighter piece of music, but also took the time to dedicate it, writing on the top of the page, for Elisa on 27th April, to remind you of L. V. Beethoven. This dedication brought up a significant level of curiosity about who exactly this Elisa was that had affected the notoriously unkempt and personally abrasive Beethoven enough to dedicate a piece of work to her. 
The most common belief was that the dedication was to Therese Malfatti, a piano student of Beethoven's and the person he proposed marriage to in 1810, the year Fiorelisa was written. And when you put together many of the events happening in Beethoven's life at the time, the pieces do start to fall into place. By 1810, there were three situations happening around Beethoven which fed into each other. Firstly, he was very well known in Vienna, Austria, for his composition and piano playing. This was how he made a living, maintained his celebrity, and kept his patrons happy. Secondly, his hearing had been deteriorating for over ten years at this point, and was a very closely guarded secret because, you know, he was a famed composer and piano player. Thirdly, despite the fact that he was a remarkably successful artist, he had never wed. There were proposals of marriage, of course, but none of them were ever accepted. Some of this could be laid at the feet of Beethoven's middle-class upbringing, which was anathema to many in the upper-class society of Vienna. But much of it can be placed on Beethoven kind of being an unlikable slob. He often just poured water over his head instead of properly washing and stayed in the same set of garments for such a long period of time that his friends would have to sneak into his house and take his clothes in order to get them clean properly. In addition, his celebrity had given him something of a swelled head and he was more than willing to tell a person exactly how he felt, often to a point of rudeness. Finally, his faith in himself was so complete, he thought that he should always have his own way due to his musical genius, and any compromise to the contrary was considered a slight on his talent. All of this changed when he met the Malfatti family and their daughter Therese. In 1810, Therese became one of his piano students, and her father was one of the doctors that were treating Beethoven for many of his illnesses. Beethoven began heaping large amount of praise on Therese for her skills at the piano, which by contemporary reports not by Beethoven were fine. They were fine. Potentially not up to a famous pianist falling all over himself to praise her work, but they were fine. What really triggered something of a surprise among his friends and colleagues was that the notoriously slovenly Beethoven actually started cleaning himself up. He ordered new clothing, shaved more frequently, and even occasionally ran a comb through his hair, which were massive steps up for the man. The final bit of confirmation that Beethoven felt a little more strongly about Therese than teacher and pupil was that he wrote a piece of music for her, specifically calibrated for her skill level. All seemed to be going well until an unfortunate incident that seemed to have happened at the Malfatti home, according to letters to and from Beethoven. Apparently, Beethoven had gotten a little too heavily into the alcoholic punch on offer and behaved so rudely towards Therese that she rejected him outright and severed all bonds with him. In a later letter to Therese, which she kept but never responded to, Beethoven wrote about the piece he had created for her and hinted that there was a secret meaning. Work it out for yourself, but do not drink punch to help you, he wrote, apparently referring to the event that ended their relationship. Interestingly, Beethoven never gave the piece an official name, just writing Bagatelle on the top of the page, but with the dedication Fur Elisa, which became its unofficial name and has been known as such from then on. Imagine, if you will, a romantic Valentine's Day night. You and your significant other are cuddled up together in a hotel room that is slightly more than you'd usually pay, but today is the day you both go all out. 
and the fire crackles merrily before you. Suddenly you hear a quiet knock at the door, subtle but insistent. You smile as you remember that you had ordered something special for the night. You walk over and open the door into the hallway and see a tall man wearing the hotel's colors and pushing a large cart with three metal covers on top and a bottle of champagne on ice. He wheels the cart in and with a practiced motion removes the metal covers to show the foods underneath. You see a dozen freshly shucked oysters, some strawberries enrobed in a delicious dark chocolate, and of course, two bowls of cornflakes. Now, you may have something of an idea of where this description may have gone slightly off the rails. Cornflakes are, by and large, not a food that most people associate with romance in any way, shape, or form, and that's not by accident. In fact, Dr. John Harvey Kellogg created cornflakes for the express purpose of stopping an epidemic that he believed was taking over Americans' minds and bodies. The insatiable urge to bone. Kellogg became the chief medical officer of the Battle Creek Sanitarium in 1876, a facility that was owned and operated by the Seventh-day Adventist Church. The sanitarium was operated based on the church's health principles, which included a vegetarian diet, abstinence from alcohol and tobacco, and a regimen of exercise. So far, so relatively normal. The Battle Creek Sanitarium was primarily a very well-known health spa, so if you were going there, you were pretty well-to-do. So a time of vegetables, exercise, and no tobacco and alcohol made sense. Heck, that's pretty much an average January for many who engage in New Year's resolutions. A little bit more off the beaten path is his advocacy for enemas as a nearly one-stop solution for any dietary issue. Kellogg believed that most disease could be alleviated or cured by a change in intestinal flora or the bacteria within the stomach and intestines, and the diet that one engages in affects whether there are more harmful or helpful bacteria within the stomach. But what if the patient has a lot of harmful bacteria? Well, this is where things get a little unusual. Kellogg recommended the frequent use of an enema machine to cleanse the bowels with several gallons of water. For those unaware, that is an inadvisable amount of water to have put up inside you. Like, exponentially larger than the recommended amount of for that particular use. This fire hose of an enema was then followed up by an administration of a pint of yogurt. But Brayden, you might say, why did you say administration? Isn't that just a fancy way of stating that they had just have some yogurt afterwards? Oh, dear listener, you're only half right. While half of that yogurt was indeed eaten, the other half, well, it went through the other side. A yogurt enema. I'm talking about a yogurt enema, which Kellogg explained away as planting the protective germs where they are most needed and may render most effective service. This combination of procedures Kellogg claimed that it would give the patient a squeaky clean intestine and what I can only imagine is a lifetime aversion to yogurt. Because my god I may never eat yogurt again and I've just read about it. And now share that information with you dear listeners. I'm sorry and you're welcome. But the reason we're talking about him on this episode is his lifelong crusade against unchastity and masturbation. Even when he was excommunicated from the Seventh-day Adventists in 1907, he still maintained many of their teachings, including the goal of reducing sexual stimulation. 
The more medical way he attempted this was by advocating circumcision at birth as a remedy to avoid local uncleanliness and masturbation, which is more than a little bit nuts. But for those who weren't up to getting circumcised to avoid potentially touching themselves or others in an amorous and consensual manner, Kellogg went a different route. He followed the Seventh-day Adventist belief that highly seasoned meats, stimulating sauces, and dainty tidbits in endless variety would irritate the nerves and react upon the sexual organs. This, Kellogg believed, led many people down the road to sin, particularly regarding sex and masturbation. Kellogg and his wife Ella had their own experimental kitchen in the Battle Creek Sanitarium in which they tried to create well-balanced vegetarian diets featuring low-protein, laxative, and high-fiber foods. The primary thing that Kellogg is well known for is the invention of cornflakes. How they got invented depended wildly on whether or not you talked to John, his wife Ella, or his brother Will. Really, the one thing that everyone agrees on is that John Kellogg was making some wheat dough when he got called to other business. The dough was left out for a day, but rather than throw it out, John decided to send it to the rollers anyways to see if it could be salvaged. Astonishingly, it seemed to create delicate flakes, which could be baked to create a crunchier texture. Will Kellogg, the younger brother, was then tasked with finding out basically how it happened and how to recreate it consistently. The patent for flaked cereals and process of preparing same was filed in 1895 by John Kellogg and was granted the following year. For the next decade, the Granos, as they called it, was very popular with the patients at Battle Creek, so Will decided to try and mass-market the flakes. He created a new company called the Battle Creek Toasted Cornflake Company and then made the single largest sin in his brother's eyes. He added sugar to the flakes. This created a significant rift between the two brothers, as John's goal of minimizing immorality in America was at direct crossroads with Will's adding sugar to the cornflakes and running an ad campaign which offered a free box of cereal to any woman who winked at their grocer, which is pretty gross in its own way, to be honest. But Will was not the only person to take the idea brought around by John Kellogg and use it for non-immorality-reducing ways. A man named C.W. Post was treated at Battle Creek in November of 1891, and five months later, ended up settling down in the area, starting his own sanitarium and dry foods company. Post was behind the creation of grape nuts, which was a mixture of yeast, barley, wheat, and an ungodly amount of sugar, which showed up on grocery shelves in 1898. Post cereals are still found to this day, and after a lengthy legal battle, Will Kellogg won the rights to the Kellogg name and changed the name of the Battle Creek Toasted Cornflake Company to the Kellogg Company, while John was unable to use his name on his own cereals. Which is probably for the best, as I enjoy cornflakes and frosted flakes a bunch, and I just don't know if I'd enjoy them as much if the guy whose company I bought them from was a proponent of a yogurt enema. I think I'd probably just eat shredded wheat. Well, I hope you weren't eating yogurt during that second story, because I was having a lovely breakfast of overnight oats when the phrase yogurt enema entered my lexicon and my imagination for the first time, and I very much needed to change meal plans. Good lord. But I hope you enjoyed the two stories and are either in the middle of plans, eating a bunch of discounted chocolate, or in the middle of plans about eating discounted chocolate. Pro tip for the future, 
Keep an eye on grocery stores around February 13th. If they have a bunch of Valentine's Day chocolate in stock on that day, they're not gonna go through it all in one day. That's where you get to jump in on the 15th. I'll talk to you all in a few weeks with the third season finale of What? Explain. Audio mixing for this episode was done by Craig Murdoch and script editing by Sarah Smith, one of whom doesn't eat yogurt and one of whom relies on it daily and resents having the phrase yogurt enema introduced to them. I am so very sorry. Kinda. If you want to be up to date on all things podcast related, why not follow us on Instagram at WhatExplainCast or on our Facebook page as WhatExplainPodcast. Don't forget to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have some time, please rate and review us. Word of mouth remains an excellent way to tell people about the show. So if you have a friend, family member, or bitter lovelorn composer that would like the show, please let them know. Thanks very much, and I'll talk to you all later.